The Bible reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 34, which can be found on page 1,512 of your Black Bibles. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he had said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. They went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. My name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here at Trinity Church Unley. It's lovely to have you here 
with us today. A few years ago, I worked in an office in Port Melbourne, and a couple of blocks down from where my office was, there was one of those chocolate gift shops. You've probably been to one like it before. It had all manner of fancy chocolates at highly inflated prices. One year, just before Christmas, I decided to drop in to this chocolate shop, and they sold these, or at least they were a a bit like these, chocolate-coated raspberry jellies. Let me show you what they look like. I can open the packet. Milk chocolate wrapped in a raspberry lolly. The bottom one here didn't get its chocolate. Um, I bought two packets, one as a Christmas gift and one I thought, well, you know those afternoons at three o'clock when you're just really struggling with that task? I thought having those in the office drawer, that'd be a, a kind of good way to get through that three o'clock in the afternoon slump. Anyway, I got into the car and I threw these raspberry lollies onto the car seat and they were still in their packet. I hadn't opened them up and yet you could smell them through the plastic. I'm not really proud of this, but by the time I got back to the office car park, the emergency pack was already open and by the time I was sitting at my desk in my office, that pack was nearly empty. They were delicious. But the problem is, halfway through a pack, I felt sick. And something that had been so delicious when I first got into it was all of a sudden the last thing that I wanted. See, too much of a good thing can take the shine off that good thing, can't it? Now, chocolate raspberries, they are a fairly long stretch away from miraculous events. But I wonder if a similar thing happens with miracles. Do they get less impressive the more of them that you see? And if so, why in Matthew chapter 9 does Matthew return to tell us about yet more physical healing miracles? Last week I suggested to you that Matthew's gospel was a very carefully written authorized biography of Jesus' life. And if it's so carefully written, why then does Matthew not lump all of the healing miracles together into one section? I mean, at this point in the story, we already know that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal the sick. Let me remind you of that. Just come back with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. If you've got your black Bibles there, it's on page 1,511. In verse 16 of chapter 8, we read this. It says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. All sickness healed. It reads to me a bit like a conclusion at this point. Everyone was healed. Jesus has the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. In fact, the way that Matthew puts it, it's like in chapter 8 that there's no sickness that Jesus can't heal. So why then does Matthew revisit this in chapter 9? We already know the authority Jesus has over sickness. So why does he go on to tell us the account of healing a paralyzed man or a sick woman who's bleeding or a girl who's succumbed ultimately to sickness and has died or the two blind men and the mute man? Why the extra detail? Well, one answer could be that when Matthew wrote chapter 8, he gave it to one of his mates to review. 
And they looked at it and they said, yeah, it's pretty good, but you've forgotten the story about the paralyzed man or, or the, the blind man. Can, can't you work that into the story? And Matthew, rather than kind of rewriting chapter 8, just thought, I'll write chapter 9. But I think there's a better explanation to what's going on here. And I think the answer to that question lies in looking at the text with that guiding question I asked you to think through last week. What kind of a man is this? Remember that's the question that the disciples asked when Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves in the storm. What kind of a man is this that the wind and the waves listen to him? In our passage today we learn a new element of our answer to that question. What kind of a man is this? We learn that this is the kind of man who has the authority to forgive sins. Now, it's this idea of the forgiveness of sins that is new in chapter 9. And if you remember nothing else from today, this is really what I want you to walk away with today. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. That, I think, is the big idea that Matthew wants us to take home from chapter 9. And so if the forgiveness of sins is the big idea that's on view in this chapter, I just want to put pause, hit the pause button for a minute and just consider with you what sin actually is. I think too often we think of sin in our modern day world as kind of our, our modern day tax collectors. It might be banking executives or corporate sharks or, or perhaps we think of those who sin as those who are guilty of you know, heinous crimes like murder or assault or robbery. Now, of course, these are all aspects of sin, aren't they? However, at a more basic, more fundamental level, sin is just an affront to God. This is the way the New Bible Dictionary puts it. I've got the, the quote on the screen, if Naveen can throw it up. The New Bible Dictionary says, Sin is essentially a violation of that which God's glory demands and is therefore, in its essence, the contradiction of God. The words uh, that are translated in our English Bibles as sin in the original language include the ideas of things like missing the mark or taking the wrong road or the idea of trespass or transgression or rebellion or law-breaking or idolatry. But I think the idea of missing the mark is a really good way of us to think about sin. Missing the mark. The mark is, of course, set by God. Have you ever missed the mark set by God? Because the Bible makes this clear, abundantly clear, that none of us are without sin. Not you, not me, not the person sitting next to you. It might be hard to believe if you're sitting next to your spouse, but that is the truth. The Bible tells us we have all missed the mark that was set by God. You may not have missed the mark in the same way or even perhaps to the same degree. The Bible makes it clear we are all sinners. In fact, you might say that sin is the universal sickness of humanity. And that's a serious sickness because it separates us from God. It separates us from God because the God that we worship is a holy God. The Bible uses uh, the holy word three times to describe God. He's a holy holy, holy God. Holiness is the chief characteristic then of what our God is like. And holiness and sin, they don't mix, they're like oil and water. 
a pure bucket of paint, white paint. If it gets one drop of black paint into that white, it's no longer pure white. It's a shade of grey. Sin is that thing that separates us from God because he is holy. So for us to be in relationship with God, the removal or cleansing of our sin is our greatest need. So having delved into that idea of sin just a little bit with you, let's look at the first of the miracles that happen in chapter 9. I'm going to read to you from verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9. It's back on page 1,512 of your Bibles. It says this, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. As I mentioned last week, the news about Jesus' ability to heal, it spreads quickly throughout the region. Now in his hometown, a paralyzed man is brought before Jesus. Those that were looking on were, of course, hoping to see another miracle. And yet, surprisingly at this point in the story, rather than treating his physical sickness... Jesus deals with the spiritual sickness and forgives the man of his sin. Jesus deals with the man's greatest need, his sin. But that raises the ire of the religious leaders because who has the authority to forgive sins? And so to prove his authority, Jesus also heals the man's physical ailments. I reckon at this point in the story, we're supposed to be asking the question, what's more important, the forgiveness of sins or the healing of the body. Or, or perhaps to put this in a different way, what was Jesus' main mission or his main purpose? To forgive sins or to heal broken bodies? What was the point of the authority that was invested in him? And with that question kind of bouncing around in our head, we get this wonderful little cameo from our writer, Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. Now to put this as politely as I can, tax collectors were not well liked back in the day. In part, this was due to their dishonesty. They often profited from their clients. How do you put this? I think they were charging fees without delivering a service. Have you heard of that recently? But not only that, they were also, in a way, thought to kind of be on the enemy's side. They were considered part of the Roman establishment. And I suspect that before meeting Jesus, Matthew was a long way from being a fine, moral, upstanding man. But here's the really surprising thing. Jesus sees Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth and he asks Matthew to follow him. I find this little cameo from Matthew so encouraging, so reassuring. Because in the context of Jesus' mission being about the forgiveness of sin, Jesus calls Matthew a man who clearly had some things to work on in his life. 
man who is tainted by sin, and he says to him, follow me. And Matthew responds, he gets up and he follows Jesus, and he goes on to write the account that we're reading today. Did Matthew enjoy the forgiveness that he found in Jesus? Well, it seems so, doesn't it? He invites his friends, his colleagues, they throw a dinner party, and together the tax collectors in Matthew's life eat and dine together with Jesus. So imagine that scene for a moment. The one who has authority to forgive sins and the sinners sitting at the same table sharing a meal. It seems right, doesn't it, when you think about it that way? Sinners and the one who has the authority to forgive sins sharing a meal. And yet the Pharisees, that's the pious religious leaders of the day, they criticize Jesus for the company that he keeps. Let me read to you from verse 11. It says, When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus is in exactly the right place, isn't he? With those who need the forgiveness of sins. And if you've ever had cause to lament over your own propensity to keep missing the mark set by God in life, or if you've ever shed a tear over your own sinfulness, how wonderfully encouraging is this little passage that, that Matthew writes. Jesus is the doctor of those who are sick with sin, and he has a cure that works. There's also a bit of a sting though, isn't there, in Jesus' words here. I wonder if you noticed that. Jesus quotes from the book of Hosea. Our Bibles have a little footnote at the bottom of um, the page that directs us to that. The book of Hosea is a prophecy essentially all about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. Destruction that is due as judgment for their sin. And it seems that Jesus is implying a similar thing for the Pharisees. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For those of us who have been part of the church for, for many years, it's a great reminder, isn't it? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus encourages the Pharisees to go away and to ponder what that means for them in their own lives. I'd love you to do the same this week, to ponder what does it mean that God would desire mercy, not sacrifice. Would you be described by those you know as a person who is merciful? Would you be described as a person who's religious? In verse 18, our story again returns to Jesus working miracles. Firstly, he's called to a girl who's just died. Now, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Healing sickness is one thing, but raising the dead, well, that seems to be another league of authority altogether. And while he's on the way there, Jesus encounters a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, just a touch of, her, of his cloak, and Jesus heals her. The dead girl's then raised in verses 23 to 26, and the news spreads. And then in verse 27 to 34, Jesus continues to heal, this time giving sight to a blind man and speech to a mute man. And it's at this point that it really feels like we're eating just one too many chocolate raspberries, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus has just raised a dead girl. She was dead. He's raised her to life. 
why include a little story about what seems to be a comparatively minor miracle in restoring just one sense? The dead girl had all five senses restored. If you can raise a dead girl, surely it's hardly worth the effort to tell us that he can fix sight or a tongue. Why is Matthew including these stories? What do you think? Well, I think part of the answer is found in the book of Isaiah. I'd love you to come with there, come, come to Isaiah with me, chapter 35. For those of you who have studied Isaiah recently, you might remember that the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are essentially about Isaiah pronouncing God's judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. You might remember that that judgment came in the form of the Assyrian army who eventually destroyed all of Judah except their capital city, Jerusalem. Remember the destruction? Remember how Isaiah describes it? Jerusalem left alone like a hut in a cucumber field. But amongst the doom and the gloom that we read about in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, there are also some glimmers of hope, hope that lies at some stage in the future. Wonderful hope. So if you've got your Bibles open there, I'd love you to turn to verse 1 of Isaiah 35. It's on page 1113. It's such a great chapter. I'd like to read all 10 verses with you. So if you've got your Bibles open, it would be great to follow along. This is what it says. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It's a bit of a complicated passage, right? But it seems to me that in this chapter, Isaiah is looking forward to a time when things will be put right. When rain will fall in the desert and the bloom will again spring to life. When those who are weak will be strengthened. Isaiah is looking forward to a time when God will be with his people again. That's particularly clear in verse 4, isn't it? He's looking forward to a time when those people will be able to walk with their God in holiness. I love sailing. That's something I've done very much in recent years. But I can remember as a kid being taught how to sail. And I remember an instructor telling me to look up at the sail 
and watch these little black threads that hung on each side of the sail. Those black threads are called telltales. They tell you what's going on with the way the boat is interacting with the wind. Did you notice in this passage there are telltales that indicate when this is going to happen? When God is going to return to be with his people? Look there back in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 35, it says this, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, Isaiah foretold a time when the lame would walk and the blind would be given sight and the mute would be given a voice. And isn't that exactly what's happening in chapter 9 of Matthew? I think this is just so great because Matthew, our author, is helping us not just to see the impressive authority of Jesus to heal the sick and to forgive sins, but he's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Here in Jesus, God has come. That's why this man has authority to forgive sins. What kind of a man is this? Well, he is God himself, come to save sinners. And that salvation, it's not primarily a salvation of physical sickness, but rather it's salvation from spiritual sickness. He's come to save us from our sins. See, Isaiah is looking forward to a time when the world will be put right, when rain falls in the desert, when you can walk along a road without ravenous beasts or lions blocking your path, and a time when sin will be dealt with, a time when people will be put right, right with God and right with each other. That requires a very special person, the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. What kind of a man is Jesus? Well, Matthew is showing us that he's the Messiah, the one who was promised to come. And just in case you think I'm reading too much into the passage here, come over the page with me to Matthew chapter 11 and have a look at verse 2. At this point in the story, John the Baptist, who you might remember, is now in prison and he wants to be sure that the hope he has placed in Jesus is right and so he sends his disciples to go and speak to Jesus. This way he puts it is, is Jesus the one who is to come? Let me read to you uh, from verse 2 of Matthew chapter 11. It says, When John was in prison, uh, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What kind of a man is this? He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. He's the one who came to make all things right. He is God with us. Both Matthew's Gospel and the book of Isaiah tell us what it takes for sins to be forgiven. It would require the suffering servant to be hung on a cross, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our sin. 
You see, forgiveness goes hand in hand with justice being served. This week and last, I've been asking you to consider carefully what kind of a man is this? Today, I want you to consider what it means that this man has the authority to forgive sins and the authority to make the world right again. Let me give thanks to God for this man. Almighty God, we thank you for the provision of your Son, our healer and our Saviour, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. We thank you for the redemption and the grace that abounds in his name. We thank you that there is no other name but the name of Jesus that is able to do this. Our Lord, God with us. Amen.